Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Trisha Bobita. And I'm Greta Johnson. This week on the podcast, we talk with Anna Quinlan. She is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist. She has been writing books for decades. She is a magical, fierce feminist, and you are going to love our conversation with her. And later in the show, we're talking to Stephen King. He is perhaps our greatest living horror novelist, responsible for The Shining, which I watched way too young and am now afraid of everything Jack Nicholson does as a result. Like all of it. Like I can't watch as good as it gets without being a little terrified. The thing about Stephen King is, for all the really scary stuff that he writes, it turns out Stephen King is actually really soft on dogs. A very specific breed of dog. First, though, Trisha, I have to tell you about this super weird dream I had last night. I found out... Oh, you don't want to hear it? I mean, no one ever wants to hear anyone describe their dreams, right? Like, that's a rule. There should Uh, be a rule in the co-host bond that I don't actually have to listen to you talk about your dreams, nor you my dreams. Okay, fine. Well, lucky for me and honestly lucky for you, Trisha... This week is National Dream Hotline Week. Once a year, something called the School of Metaphysics invites you to call them up and you can tell them your dreams and they interpret them for you. So I called up the School of Metaphysics campus in Palatine, which isn't far from here in Chicago, and I talked with Leah Morris. Hello, this is Leah. Hey, Leah. This is Greta from Nerdette. Hi, Greta. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Yay. I'm super excited for this interpretation. It's going to be weird. Are you ready? I'm totally ready. Okay, cool. So here's the deal. I had a dream that I was at the gym. It's not my normal gym. It was just like a weird random gym. And I found out that there was going to be a new Veronica Mars audiobook. Oh, my God. And that it was going to be voiced by Terry Gross, who like, do you know who Terry Gross is? I don't. She hosts this NPR show called Fresh Air. She's sort of like public radio famous. Gotcha. So I was like, oh, my God, I have to go get this book. And like all of a sudden I'm in this car that like I think I've stolen, but I'm not driving it. I'm sitting it in the back seat. But like obviously I've told the person in the front seat that they have to drive it. And then all of a sudden there's like this kerfuffle and they decide they're not driving anymore. And so I jump out of the car and I find this garden gnome on the side of this building. And he's like, yo, I can turn you into a garden gnome. But then he turns me into a garden pickle and I like dig into the dirt. And that's all I can remember. (laughs) (laughs) Greta, that is an awesome dream. It's weird, right? (laughs) It's wonderful. (laughs) So what do you think? Well, it sounds like you have a pretty strong use of your imagination. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> that might seem obvious already, but um, <laughs> the way that I've learned to use dreams, um, the way I look at dreams and what's taught with the school of metaphysics is that every person, place, or thing in the dream represents you. Interesting. Yeah. And the dreams that we have at night reflect our thoughts and attitudes and emotions the day before. Uh So it's kind of like getting a little snapshot from a deeper part of yourself. 
about what's going on in your life. So you can use them as like kind of a guide to see how you're thinking, how you're moving in your life, and what to change or what you need to learn. So with this dream, Uh um, it's fascinating. (laughs) The first thing that comes to mind is imagination, and I'll tell you why. So you have Veronica Mars, and then you said her name was what? Terry what? Terry Gross. Gross. Okay. And you don't know Terry. Is that true? I do not. No. I I feel like I know Terry, but I do not know Terry. I'm sure, right? If you listen to her show. (laughs) Yeah, totally. So these two, Veronica Mars and Terry Gross, are going to represent you and the ways that you see yourself. (laughs) Yeah, which is really cool. Yeah, that's actually kind of awesome. Yeah, it's really awesome. And Veronica Mars is like one of my favorite shows ever. So I'm totally familiar with her. (laughs) Um, But what I would ask you is how would you describe Veronica Mars and Terry Gross in like two words? Like if you had to assign them two characteristics. I mean, I feel like Veronica Mars is like scrappy and tenacious Mm -hmm. and Terry Gross is empathetic and insightful. Ooh, nice. Okay. So when you have dreams with people that you don't actually know, there's kind of an an imagined idea about them that we have. And whenever we have dreams with people in this form, it has to do with like qualities and characteristics that we're starting to step into and like to imagine ourselves having. (laughs) That's pretty sweet. I'll take it. Yeah, it's totally (laughs) sweet. And I would love to have those, you know, qualities show up in a dream. (laughs) Now, Veronica Mars, there's a little bit more of an imagined aspect because she is a character. But what it sounds like is going on in that dream is that there's new resources that have to do with you and how you're developing these qualities, which would be the book. And they're very enticing and they're stimulating you to act pretty quickly. And the car, when you get into the car, that represents your physical body. So it's really how you interact with your environment, how you use your five senses. Yeah. So there's something that's stimulating you internally, which would be the book that's being voiced over by Terry. You know, that's kind of a, there's a union of those two qualities. Mm -hmm. And it's causing you to move forward very quickly in your action. So it's like you're having an idea and then getting up and moving quickly and going about your day and running around and answering calls and Uh doing all these different things. And there is kind of like an aspect of being out of control of that because... Because I'm not driving. (laughs) Yeah, you're not driving. That's exactly right. See, you're so intuitive. And because you're not entirely sure where you're going, you just know you're going to get the book. And then also, I think you said that the car was stolen. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so there's kind of like a sense of doing whatever you have to do to get to it. Oh my gosh, this is kind of creepy actually, Leah. Oh good, tell me why. <laughs> oh, it just feels actually really on point. Yeah, and you know, they usually are. Once you start to kind of get to know the language of the dreams, it, it becomes like a practice, like an art of communication with yourself. What about the garden gnome part? Yeah, that's pretty interesting. So. <laughs> The garden gnome, again, is going to represent your imagination. So this is how I would look at that if it was my dream. I would look at it as there's something that I'm being stimulated with in myself, which is the Veronica Mars and Terry Gross. And there's something that's being stimulated within myself. I'm moving forward in it, but it's going a little too fast. So I'm going to direct my imagination over here instead. 
So I'm going to go bury myself <laughs> as a pickle. <laughs> Which, you know, is actually really cool because if you think about it, like a garden pickle, yes, there's imagination involved in all of that, <laughs> right? Uh-huh. But a garden pickle does not move. Yeah. So it's a little more stationary. <laughs> it's a little so more funny. grounded, maybe. Yeah. So I'm stressed out, is what you're saying. Oh my gosh, that is insane. You know, I can tell you what the symbols mean and kind of like what I see. Really, though, how it applies to your life is going to be entirely up to you. So on a scale of one to 10, with 10 being the most memorable, how does my dream rank on the scale for you? It's pretty high up there. Really? um, Yeah, I haven't heard. I've been doing this for eight years. So I haven't heard garden gnome or turning into a garden pickle. I don't know if I've ever heard that. Yes. Oh my gosh. That's hilarious. That's great. I'm glad I could help. (laughs) Awesome. All right. Well, Leah Morris is a dream interpreter with the School of Metaphysics. Thank you so much for talking with me, Leah. Yeah, you're welcome. Leah is doing all of us a solid by listening to everyone talk about their weird dreams so we don't have to. And she has some pretty interesting things to say about them. So, yeah, I guess that was pretty fun. See, this is what you could be for me, Tricia. No, thanks. I don't want to work for the School of Metaphysics. (laughs) Fair enough. All right. Time for Anna Quinlan. Anna Quinlan is a Pulitzer Prize winner. I grew up with a house full of her books. Her latest is Miller's Valley. Anna, thank you so much for coming, first of all. We are very excited to talk with you. It's great to talk to both of you. You're kind of legendary now. (laughs) (laughs) For you to say that to us is kind of a trip. (laughs) Mind-blowing. So we have to tell you we really loved Miller's Valley. I I think it's one of those books that's really difficult for me to tell people about because when I give the little plot synopsis, it's like, yes, it's about a young woman coming of age in the 50s and 60s and 70s in a small town in America. But it's also about so much more than that, that I just, you know, it's one of those books that's like, listen, don't worry about it. Just read it. Like, just take it and just go read it. Well, that's why it's always really so painful when you go on a television or radio show and the host, either because they haven't read the book or because they feel that they should do this for the sake of readers, says, what's the book about? And I always want to say she doesn't love her husband. She falls in love with an army officer and she jumps in front of a train at the end. (laughs) Because that's really all Anna Karenina is about. Of course, it's about everything other than that. Plot is just basically reductive. And, you know, a good novel, a good novel's a world. And you live in the world. And you not only see what's in that world, you see what's in you that's part of that world, at least if the writer is doing it right. So that whenever someone says, what's it about... I just want to say it's about 300 pages. (laughs) (laughs) So how much of you is in this book, in this this protagonist? And I mean, you probably get asked that question a lot as a writer, how much of you is in this book? But I always find the answer interesting because I think with you especially, there's a theme that runs through your work of mothers and motherhood that, you know, is, is a complicated component to this character's life. I think most of us start out with a first novel, that is a lot like us in a variety of ways. And then over time, it becomes like making sausage. You take everything you've learned and everybody you know and all of yourself and you grind it up together so that you can't really tease out its component parts. I don't think I'm anything like Mimi Miller, who is the protagonist of this book. 
but you know, there's little bits and pieces of of me in them in every character in the novel. Well, and I think too, there's a certain sensibility that you can relate to within it too, right? Yeah, I mean, people have told me that they find the ending of Miller's Valley quite sad, but it's elegiac in the way all our lives are when we look back on them, when we look at the sum total of what's been important to us and what good things have happened and what bad things have happened. And because Mimi is in her 60s at the end of the book, the people that you've lost. I thought it was sweet, though. I mean, I think for me, especially, you know, reading a story where the protagonist grows up in a small town, so much of what Mimi confronts is that idea that you you have to leave if you really want to fulfill the opportunities you have. And I think for me growing up in Fairbanks, Alaska, and probably for you too, Tricia, right, there's a certain sense that like you got to go and you got to see what it is that you're able to accomplish out in the world. And the fact that Mimi ends up deciding to come back home, I think, is just such a powerful notion in terms of staking out your own future, but then also knowing when you're ready to come back. But you know what's so interesting about that, Greta? I have three kids who grew up in New York City, uh-huh. in Manhattan. That's where they went to school and until they went away to college. And that's where they live. And they have that exact same feeling. Yeah, that I guess, you have yeah. to leave mm-hmm. New York. You have to. One went to Beijing. One is in, <laughs> now in Denver. The other one's in L.A. You have to leave New York, and it's not New York. It's you have to leave the place where people knew you when you were a kid, yeah. where you can walk past your high school on the street, or drive past a place where you used to get ice cream when you were twelve, and sort of become something else. And maybe then be willing to come back. I think, too, you know, something I often find myself thinking about also is that idea that you you're never more defined by the place that you come from until you're not there anymore. Oh, that's true, right? Yeah, you're much more a New Yorker elsewhere probably than in New York. We're all defined by where we grew up. And some people try to get away from that because it's terrible for them. I mean, I I had lots of friends when I was a young reporter in my 20s in New York who had come to New York to live and to work specifically because they were gay men or lesbians and they didn't feel like there was any possibility of being their authentic selves anyplace else. I mean, for the guys I knew, it was New York or San Francisco. Which coast am I going to go to so I can be who I am? And of course, all of that has changed. But that idea that you have to go someplace else to be your authentic self and yet that place where you grew up is so deeply embedded in your heart and soul. I think that's true of all of us. I wonder if we can talk a a little more about sort of your writing process. One thing I love that we were doing a little bit of a dossier on you as we do. (laughs) One thing I love is that you have a specific music that ties you to the habit of having to be a writer. What music is that for you? Well, it it changes from time to time. I mean, the new Adele album Ooh. has been in heavy rotation <laughs> for the last six months to the point where I think my kids are like, enough, okay? <laughs> um, I listen to Sondheim all the time. You know, it, it cycles through. Sometimes it's Follies and sometimes it's Pacific Overtures. And I always have music playing when I'm writing, except at the end of the process, Because when I finish a first draft, I read the whole book aloud to myself. Wow. Yeah, I think 
the woman who works in our house taking care of the place thinks that I'm a lunatic during this period because you can hear me declaiming from the top floor. But I'm a very oral, A-U-R-A-L writer, and I can hear what's wrong with my own work when I read it aloud in a way that my eye will just skim right over. And I especially can hear bad dialogue. Hmm. I mean, when you say bad dialogue, there's just this little voice in your head screaming, no one talks like that, (laughs) you know, and then you have the chance to fix it. But I have to turn off the music while I do that. And why do you, when you're in the midst of writing a project, why do you stop mid-sentence at the end of a day? Um, Because I'm really intimidated by writing, and I always feel like I'm not very good at it. And when I start first thing in the morning, it's the worst. I have a whole series of tasks first thing in the morning that I do in order not to write. Um, (laughs) I, I read four newspapers every morning, and I have breakfast, usually with my husband, and I log about four to five miles either walking or running, and I talk to my closest friend on the telephone, and then I run out of stuff. And it's about It's usually at about 9.30. But if I went upstairs to my computer and sat down and had to start a new chapter, it would just be paralyzing for me. Just that Um, blinking cursor staring at you. Yeah, but a a sentence cut off in mid-sentence, I sort of know how that's going to end up. And so that that sort of jump starts me into a new day. There's a subject and a verb and you just got to finish it. Yeah, and a thought. (laughs) (laughs) I imagine a lot of people will be sort of relieved to hear that it's not actually this easy, magical, outflowing process for you where you just have all the words all the time. Yeah, the muse. Where is the muse? (laughs) Maybe she lives here in Chicago where I am not. Um, Madeline Langla, who wrote A Wrinkle in Time, once said, inspiration comes during writing, not before it. And it's so important because I really do think people wait. Oh, I'm like, I'm waiting for an idea. I'm waiting to to be inspired. And I just think I'm waiting and waiting and waiting and it's not happening. That lightning will never strike while you're Uh, sitting still. No, not while you're sitting still. You know, I mean... Bad writing often leads to good writing, but not writing doesn't lead to anything except whatever happens to be on the DVR, which admittedly (laughs) is great. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events.
You're listening to Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson here with Trisha Bobita and author Anna Quinlan. Anna, you've mentioned in other places before that you felt like it was more difficult to raise feminist sons than a feminist daughter. Why is that? Oh, because when when you're trying to raise somebody to understand that they're going to get shafted by the man, that's fairly <laughs> simple, you know. Whereas when you're saying to these two lovely young men who are smart and white and prosperous, now, see, there's this thing called white male privilege, but you shouldn't take it. I mean— that gets kind of complicated, I've got to say. My, you know, my most favorite story about all this is I I was chair of the board of trustees at Barnard where I went to college and our women's center had this great t-shirt that said, dare to say the F word on the front and then on the back it said feminist. And I got one in black with white letters. My second son only wears black. Mm-hmm. Uh, it makes it very easy to sort his laundry. <laughs> and um and so I gave Christopher the shirt. He was going to Wesleyan at the time. So he came home one day and he had on the shirt. And I was like, oh, Chris, you're wearing the shirt. And he said, Mom, I wear this shirt all the time. And I go, you do? And he goes, yeah, chicks dig it. <laughs> and, but you know what? That's a reason to raise feminist sons. Yeah. In the more politically correct parlance, women like men who treat women as <laughs> <laughs> or as Christopher like said, chicks dig it. <laughs> this reminds me of my brother telling girls on Tinder that his sister has a podcast called Nerdette. And did it work? I don't know, man. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to know too much about exactly. your brother's I'm not love asking life. Yeah. You don't ask follow-up questions about that. That's why. Yeah, yeah. That's why. <laughs> Anna, how has your relationship to that word, to the word feminism, changed over time? Oh, boy, I don't think it's changed at all. I mean, if I were ever to get inked, well, I I do plan to get a tattoo if I get to be 70. And it won't be this tattoo. Christopher invented this little figure called the Eggman that he does in cartoons for me from time to time. Sometimes whole comic books, sometimes just an individual cartoon. If I get to be 70, I'm getting the Eggman on my hip. But I mean, you know... I would have the word feminist somewhere across my shoulder blades or something. I I just – feminism is responsible for literally my entire life. From going to a woman's college where I was really told not that my opinions were valued but that they were required Mm. to being hired at the New York Times purely because I was female to settle a class action suit to – Getting to do a column where I could write frequently, if not most of the time, about the concerns of women, just everything. Every year on her birthday, I send Gloria Steinem an email that says, thank you for my life, because the women who went before me made everything possible. And you've been quick to chastise when female pop stars occasionally over the last few years, someone's asked them, are you a feminist? And sometimes they hem and haw and they say, oh, I'm not sure. I don't know how I feel about that word or this kind of thing. And it feels like since Beyonce put the word in giant 30 foot letters behind her feminism on the screen as she was performing, it feels like the conversation around that word has changed to me dramatically just in the last 18 months, two years. Well, I hope that's true because really the word feminism was just demonized, was tarred by the right wing. And the frustrating thing about all those young women is, 
you take them through the laundry list. Well, do you believe that women should be able to work at any of the jobs that men do? Oh, yeah. And do you believe they should be paid the same amount for that? Oh, yeah. And you'd get down through seven or eight things, and then you'd say, that's what feminism is. Okay. (laughs) That's it. That's That's all it is. You know? And and there's the whole, well, why don't you just call it humanism? Well, I'll call it humanism when we start with a level playing field. But we don't have a level playing field. So when you have, you know, one group that's still – is in a position of power and influence and one that's struggling to achieve it, that's feminism. It's a word that's got to be used. On the other hand, if somebody's going to do it, I'm not so concerned that they use it. Hmm. In other Hmm. words, if you're going to walk the walk, I can forgive you if you don't necessarily want to talk the talk. I'd like you to do both, but the walk is more important to me. Is there someone who you think walks the walk but is... Silent on the talk? Well, some of those young (laughs) women seem to really have a good angle on bringing other women along on, you know, the whole girlfriend posse thing is just like... Squad goals. Yeah, I'm just going to help other women. I'm just going to raise up other women. I mean, there's a vulgar term that my kids use that says, like, chicks before dicks. Yes. And bros (laughs) before hoes. Yep. You know, I mean, when I was growing up... If some guy asked you out and you had an arrangement to get together with your girlfriends, you blew off your girlfriends in a nano. And that's just not true anymore. It's certainly not true of my daughter and her female friends. They would have contempt for anybody who did that. And I think that's nothing but a good thing. You know, there is another version of that that's sisters before misters. Oh, that's good. I thought you might like that. That's good. I like that. (laughs) Or ovaries before broveries, which is lovely notes from Parks and Rec. (laughs) Let's just keep this going. Um, it's National Ovary Day. Um, Every day is National Every day. So we talked with Catelyn Moran a while back. Who oh, is, yay. She's fantastic. Yay. And one thing she wrote about in How to Be a Woman is the idea that we need to stop recognizing the waves of feminism and just acknowledge a growing tide. And I was wondering if you agree with that statement, a rising tide, I guess. That's an interesting way of thinking about it. Frankly, I think some of the wave thing has been because it has worked just like a wave. I mean, you had all of the move forward that you had right after the First World War. And then it peeled right back when the Second World War came along and the 50s. And then suddenly you had the second wave that came at the end of the 60s and the beginning of the 70s. But maybe we are at a moment when we've gone so far, there's no ebb or flow. There's just more and more and more. I'd be so happy to think that. So Anna, one thing that you have said that I really love for a number of reasons is that you feel that you have finally reached the age where you don't have to give a shit anymore. Mm, totally. <laughs> so can we not give a shit too? Do we have to keep caring? Like, how, does it take the wisdom of of age and experience to Frankly, wake up and realize it? I hate to say this, yeah. but I think it dovetailed with the end of estrogen. Ah. <laughs> no, I mean over the years, from time to time. People have said to me, just going to tell you this on the QT, menopause is the bomb. (laughs) I was like, what? (laughs) Um, No, seriously. First of all, you never have to go, 
do I have tampons? <laughs> um, you can buy really great underwear, and it stays great unless your daughter steals it. Um, uh, but more than anything else, it's like it really did come that moment where I thought, I just don't care anymore. I, I don't care. And and caring was predicated on a really big lie. Caring was predicated on the idea that somehow I wasn't quite good enough. And, you know, every woman I know says, well, if you could give a message to your 21-year-old self, what would you tell her? You're great. You're great. You look great. You sound great. You have great friends. You're so smart, you know. And and the truth is most of us muddle through our 20s, or a lot of us do, thinking, I don't know. What should I wear? And there just comes that moment where you think, uh-uh, I'm done with that. I'm done with that. I'm fine. Anna Quinlan, thank you so much for joining us on Nerdette. Hey, it was great. It was really fun. I don't think we're supposed to have this much fun <laughs> doing this, You know, we? no one has told us that we can't, so we're just going to keep going. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> cannot find Anna on Twitter, but you can read her new book, Miller's Valley. Still to come on the show, Stephen King shows his soft, furry side, shall we say? Short-legged side, maybe? This is Nerdette. Risha, can I tell you how excited I am about this segment? Stephen King, yeah, this is pretty exciting. But can I tell you why I'm so excited? It's not actually because Stephen King. It's because of what Stephen King is obsessed with. Ah, yes. Corgis. The corgi. I think this is where you need to explain to some people what a corgi is, but also why you're obsessed with them. Okay, so the corgi, I like to describe corgis as a cross between a German shepherd and a dachshund. But, like, most people just look really confused when I say that. Because it's a confusing dog. So these are, like, real short dogs. They have they have tiny little legs, but they're still kind of thick and they're long and they have really big ears. And some of them have tails and some of them don't. The queen actually has corgis. You know, the queen of England. You often will see you portraits know, the of queen her of with, England. Like, a bunch of corgis. A fleet? I, yeah, it is a fleet. No, actually, it's a, a, a crime of corgis, we've decided. Is that what a group of corgis Not really, is but that's what we've decided. Okay. So my parents started getting corgis when I was in high school, and they're just these really fun, weird-looking, kind of amazing dogs. One of my friends once described one of our dogs as a hairy worm. Oh, that's not appealing. I really but like it. But your corgi is appealing. I love your yeah, corgi. Yeah, I have my own corgi now. Her name is Scout, and she's adorable and sweet. And yeah, I don't know. Corgis are just like, they're weird and quirky. I feel like more than any other dog breed that I've encountered, like a person who loves corgis loves corgis, which is so perfect for the idea of the show too, right? Yeah. Stephen King is not a casual corgi fan. Right. I first found out that Stephen King loved corgis from like an article I saw, I think maybe on BuzzFeed or something about a year ago. And it was really funny because I have never read any Stephen King. Unlike you, Trisha, I never even saw The Shining because I've seen only like a dozen movies in my life. But I remember seeing this article about Stephen King and corgis and thinking, I need to talk to this brilliant man. I'm so glad we got to make your dream come true of talking to Stephen King, Greta.
thank you for taking the time while you're in Florida. I appreciate it. Well, absolutely. You want to talk about corgis? I'm your man. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. You have no idea. People keep asking me, like, so what are you going to talk to Stephen King about? And I say corgis, and they just give me this weird blank stare like they don't get it. (laughs) That's okay. Some of us do. (laughs) So tell me about your love of corgis. When did this begin? Oh, let's see. Probably around, I think, 1983 or 1984. When my kids were little, my wife's brother came over with a huge corgi named Jeremy. And <laughs> I just fell in love with Jeremy right off the bat. And I said, we've got to have a corgi like that. And we got a corgi whose name was Bill. And he had epilepsy, but he was a terrific dog. He was terrific with the kids. And he lived for about three years. And ever since then, we've had corgis. We've had probably five or six of them in all. And we have two now. We have my wife's corgi, whose name is Vixie. She's a rescue dog, and she's 13 years old. She's the oh. thing of good. And uh, <laughs> she she went everywhere with Tabitha, and she wanted to sleep on the bed next to Tabitha, and she just would go crazy when Tabby left. And I said, finally, I want a dog that likes me. So, <laughs> I want my own corgi. I want my own corgi. So... My older son, Joe, also has a corgi whose name is McMurtry. Oh, my named gosh. after Larry McMurtry, the novelist. And he said, well, I got mine from this lady who raises corgis in New Hampshire, and why don't you give her a call? So we did, and we got Molly, who is the thing of evil. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and now we have two corgis in the house. One is old and, and one is young. So we have a nice older lady and one who's sort of a backup. The thing of evil would be your corgi, wouldn't it, Stephen? Right. That's Molly. Molly is the thing of evil. So you talk about seeing Jeremy for the first time and just falling in love with him. What was it about Jeremy? Well, corgis have this look. (laughs) They're always smiling and their eyes are always bright and they're very um, smart dogs and they're loving and they're also herding dogs which I like. And uh, my favorite story, we we had a corgi named Frodo, who <laughs> lived to be, I think, 13 or 14 years old. And one day we had a wedding reception in our backyard. This was in Maine. And we had a tent. And there were probably 40 or 50 people there. And everybody was walking around and they were eating sandwiches. And Frodo was out there and he was watching everything that was going on. And one of the couples that was there had a little girl who was probably three years old. And she was wearing this, like, almost like a princess dress. It was all fluffy and it had a lot of petticoats and that sort of thing. And at some point, she wandered away from everybody and went out on the front lawn and there's a road out there and the next thing I saw was Frodo had went to get her and was pulling her back (laughs) by the hem of her dress and she was giggling like crazy but Frodo knew that she was supposed to be with the rest of the herd so he pulled her back and uh, that's the way that they are that's the way that they roll they love to have everybody together that's so sweet yeah yeah And, you know, the thing is about dogs is I always say you can learn a lot about acceptance from a dog Mm. uh, because they 
pretty much take the world as it is. And Nixie did that, and all the other ones do as well. Uh, you train them up, and they accept that, and you give them love, and they give it back. It's great. It's great to have a dog. And I posted a lot of pictures of um, Molly on the Internet. You know, I call it the thing of evil. The thing of evil. Yeah, it amuses me to think of a corgi as sort of a an art supervillain that's secretly <laughs> running the whole world. My imagination just runs that way, Greta. So uh, I post the pictures on the net and everything, but the great secret is that Molly's really a thing of good. She's busy, and at the same time, she's... Well, I want to say pretty well behaved. If my wife were here right now, she'd be laughing, but she's flown off to New England, so... Ah, (laughs) so you get to say she's actually good. Do you have a corgi by any chance? I do have a corgi. Her name is Scout, Uh and she is actually extremely anxious. So she, the smiling face that you described earlier, Scout kind of looks terrified all the time. Well, Nixon is terrified a lot of the time. (laughs) She came to us and she trembled all over whenever anybody came near except Tabby. And she bonded with Tabby immediately. And now she allows me to pet her and feed her, but nobody else, nobody else can really come near because she just sort of cringes. But Molly, on the other hand, is brave as the devil. And as far as she's concerned, she's a big dog. You know, there's a really great saying, I can't remember who said it, but it's that that corgis, you know, some people say corgis are big dogs and small dog bodies. um, But someone said what they actually are is big dogs with no legs. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I remember uh, taking Molly on a walk one time. Not Molly, this was Frodo. And because it was several years ago, I was walking with him and this old fellow came along and looked at her and said, does that dog need to jump up to go to the bathroom? <laughs> and you said, no, sir, she does just fine. She does just fine. That's right. <laughs> Is your dog named after Scout in To Kill a Mockingbird? I assume so. I actually, she's also a rescue, so I don't really know. But I think that is the deal because she is a lady named Scout, of which there aren't many in the world. No. No, that's true. That's true. Yeah, I like to call her Scooter. <laughs> Scooter, I like it. They're fast. Molly's very fast in the backyard. Yeah, she's got goes. hustle, man. People at the dog park are always like, oh, that poor corgi's not going to be able to do anything with that tennis ball. And I'm like, just you wait, man. Right. Not only are they fast, but they can jump. And, uh, yeah, they can do a lot of stuff. So what is, this is a really weird question, but I think you're going to like it. What is your favorite corgi body part? Oh, favorite corgi body part. I think they're little short legs because they move so fast. What you were saying before about, oh, that little dog won't be able to do anything. They've never seen a corgi run. The legs just absolutely blur into motion and their bodies get low to the ground and they just, they're they're scooters. They scoot along. And so I would say probably the little short legs are my favorite part. They really can. So it's funny to hear that your son has a corgi because my parents have three corgis. Uh-huh. And that's why I ended up with one just because I fell in love with them too. What do you think it is about like this generational thing with the corgis? Why? <sighs> like are our brains just broken? I don't really know what it is, but I think that it's a form of love and that you fix on one dog that you really love, and you see the beauty in that dog. Uh, Mm -hmm. When I look at 
Molly, I, I, I see her broad chest and how muscular she is and the brightness of her eyes. And as I say, whenever she looks up, there's this sort of fiendish grin on her face. <laughs> there are those things. And, and of course, <laughs> I love when you bend to stroke a corgi, they lay their ears back to improve the stroking surface as much as they can. And they, they don't have tails, so their whole rear end just wiggles with joy when you come in. So mm. I think that I particularly care for Molly because I understand she's probably my last dog. She's a year and a half old. I'm 68. And if things work out the way that I hope they do, we'll play out at about the same time. <laughs> That's pretty sweet, Stephen. I like it. Yeah. Well, Stephen King, thank you so much for talking with me about corgis. This has been really fun. That's really uh, fun for me, too, because nobody ever asks me about my dog, and that's a, that's a nice thing. So you take care of yours, and I'll take care of mine. All right. You got a deal, sir. Okay. Thanks a lot. Hey, thank you. Have a good one. Trisha, it's funny. People told me that Stephen King would be very kind, but I was still super surprised at just how sweet that man actually is. Yeah, all the weirdness goes into the books, I guess. <laughs> the show is produced by us, Trisha Bobita and Greta Johnson. Our interns are Maya Cole and Sebrin Mallard. Our senior producer is Joe Dassault, and our executive producer is Joel Meyer. You can listen to us wherever you're listening to us because you already are, but we would love it if you took the plunge and subscribed on iTunes, Stitcher, maybe follow us on NPR One. Thanks to nickname 00903056767 for the iTunes Wait, is that, is that someone's social security number? I don't know if we should be reading no, that. Why what did they is put that? that so many numbers? I don't know, but I kind of love it. 00909030567. I don't know what that could be. I guess it's not a phone number. In any case, nickname 00903056767 thought podcasts were boring, but what? found our show during midterms and says we're fun and funky. Oh, I like that he called this funky. Right? I wonder how much of our podcast audience can be traced back to people avoiding studying for midterms. What do you think? I think between midterms and finals, that's a lot of audience growth for us because procrastinating is real. Procrastinating is real. It's true. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and Goodreads. Nerdette is a production of WBZ Chicago, where there are delightful podcasts for nerds of all stripes. Movie nerds, check out film spotting. Music nerds, check out sound opinions. Find out more at wbez.org slash podcasts. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. Do your homework. Do your homework. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Tanwen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.